uh, William Barclay, a commentator of, of yesteryear, but has uh, good things to say. He says about this passage tonight, no passage is more difficult for us, under, for us to understand today. It is difficult because Paul expresses himself in a difficult way. Just to encourage you. So if I'm difficult tonight, I take after Paul, but I hope I'm not. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all men, or all people, because all sinned. For before the law was given, sin was in the world, but sin is not taken into account when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam, who was a pattern of the one to come. But the gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died by the trespass of one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Notice the exclamation mark. To the many. Again, the gift of God is not like the result of one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation. But the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. For if by the trespass of one man death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Consequently, just as the result of one trespass was condemnation for all people, all men, so also the result of one act of righteousness was justification that brings life for all men. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of one man, the many will be made righteous. The law was added so that the trespass might increase. But where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Got it? Jesus, we ask that in these words, there wouldn't be complexity and things that are becoming mystified. But I pray through the Holy Spirit, these deep things would become plain. These deep things would be apprehended and believed. These deep things would build us and strengthen us in our faith, in our mind, in our thinking, and thereby in our living. In Jesus' name, amen. When I was uh, studying in the States some while ago, 
one of the courses we had to do was Christian ethics. And I was looking forward to it, because uh, uh, I like that sort of thing. And we had to do lots of ethics, and there's a lot of thinking, there's a lot of working out theology. And, and it seems a little bit like shifting goalposts when you do Christian ethics, because you kind of nail stuff down for as best you know it. And then these clever people go and change the goalpost because they make a new technology or they make, they make a new breakthrough in science. And you're kind of left having to rethink it all because circumstances have changed. For instance, one of the books that I had to study and think about was a book that's still on my bookshelf, if you would like to read it. It's called The Perfect Baby. And the whole premise of this book is, is addressing the whole issue as Christians about what do you do when science enables us to effectively genetically modify not just crops but embryos, fetuses, people, in order that there is the potential, should anyone choose, to arrange genes, DNA, to get the perfect baby? The question is, what might that perfect baby look like? Is it male or female? There lies a big discussion. Go back 70 years, was a comment here. What was the comment? <laughs> what discussion? Okay, uh, go back 50, 60, 70 years, there was a race in Northern Europe who were very clear about what perfect humanity would look like. It tended towards blonde hair and blue eyes. I know, I'm just <laughs> making a joke. <laughs> Please. Yeah, indeed. Swedish, probably. But it's essentially asking kind of a big question of saying, in the kind of physical and who we are, we recognize there's flaws and faults. And you have to take into account of saying, well, is perfect maybe just physically perfect? Talking to friends who have children with disabilities are saying, well, there might be a physical disability, but in terms of personality and soul and spirit, that children with, or adults with disabilities are not less perfect. They're still made in the image of God. Christian ethics, complicated. But it kind of raises that sort of question, if we could remold our DNA or that of children that we might have, to model it, what would we do? And it's important in this light because, because Paul in this text is kind of talking about what makes us, us spiritual DNA. In chapters 1 to 3, he's, he's argued really forcibly to say whether you're a non-Jew, someone from any part of any nation in the world, or whether you're Jewish, you're as guilty before God as anybody else, sin. And that sin, to use the biblical phrase, has universal effect and universal scope, not just among the human race, but in Romans 8, it talks about how even creation is subjected and affected. And he's gone through, and, and this is gospel, this is good news, so stick with me. In, in chapter 4, he's gone through about faith and justification, and it's not through works that Abraham just believed in God. 
And last week we looked at how much he loves us. He loves us. Remember, I got the flower and pulled it apart. And in chapter 5, uh, Paul introduces a theme that he's brought up in Galatians, but is, is writ large here in Romans. He talks about Adam and Jesus, Adam and Christ, actually. And he says the condition that we have, our spiritual DNA, our, our form and our character, is inherited from Adam, but Christ has come. Who we are in Adam affects everything. But the good news is that who we then become in Christ affects things even much more than it was in Adam. You see, he says that Adam is the father of death and unrighteous. What a heritage to have on your tombstone. Adam, the father of all death and unrighteousness. But it's true that all of us are his descendants. All of us are his offspring. All of us carry this spiritual DNA, so to speak, that leads us towards sin, that puts us in the place of judgment and condemnation and death. And this mindset, this inheritance, this common ancestry that we each have affects our morals and our thinking because it's like father, like son. That Adam, says Paul, is the source or the head or the originator or the representative. And we all carry that legacy. Now that's a big thought to grasp. Let me go back to genes. Not the denims, the others. A few years ago, I was at a friend's wedding. And I found myself in that uh, place like father, like son. There's a photograph of me. It's a really nice photo. It's the end of the wedding, and everyone's happy, sunny day, all in finery. You know, it was a big of a posh wedding, so it was in the tails and all that. And there I was, standing, chatting to a friend, just standing how I would. And I looked at it, and I could so see my dad, because he stands, or stood, in a particular way. And I kind of, I was just doing that. And there was part of me that was thinking, oh my goodness. How did that happen? Not that he was bad. But we see it, don't we, in so many traits that we we like to think we kind of make our own agenda. But actually, we're so influenced by our parents, by their genes and by who they were. And so from time to time, we come across the fact that, that you see sometimes in generations... Things that are sometimes to do with mental health, that you see sometimes uh, manic depression or bipolar, kind of is passed along. Or people predisposed to kind of anger, that it seems to pass along. And so it's not much of a leap to recognize this in more spiritual terms. Uh, One of the things I once learned about was uh, something called family unit therapy theory. And it kind of talks about how it, well, that happens in individuals, but it happens in groups too. And they said about churches, that if you look back over 
uh, kind of a long history of a church, very often you will see, even though generations might have died out before, that something seems to keep happening in some churches. That maybe there's a kind of a split that happens uh, in the course of time for one reason or another. And the churches go their separate ways. And maybe 50, 60, 70 years happen. And the circumstances begin to kind of relate again. And the same thing repeats. Different people, different times. But there's something about that which is passed on in a family that kind of gets replicated. Now, I won't go into the ins and outs of, of why that may be. But if that happens when we see it in terms, of, uh, in terms of how I stand or in terms of things that can be passed from generation to generation, we see it in our own families. And with the experience, the example of what happens with groups of people or even nations, I don't think it's too much of a stretch to realize that this is happening all the time in the legacy and the ancestry of we are in Adam, says Paul. Are you with me? I hope I'm not making this confusing. How does that work itself out? Well, in what sense are we in Adam? Well, John Wesley came up with these things. I think they're good. In, in Adam, all die because, because of Adam, our bodies became mortal. Remember that sin entered, uh, death entered the world through Adam's rebellion of God. One of the consequences of that sin, we're told, is mortality. And as a result of that, as of that rejection, that rebellion that we all now live with, we're all mortal, our souls died. That is, we were disunited from God, separated from God, no longer dwelling as one with our Creator and Lord. And because of that, we are kind of born in this uh, lifestyle, this life set, where we're born mortal and born with dead souls, so to speak, and born into a sinful nature, because that's who our parents were, and their parents, and their parents, and their parents, etc., to Adam and Eve. That's what it means when Paul is saying in chapter 5, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and this way death came to all people. That is our nature. Whether or not, and we, this is we do choose to sin, but it's the condition and the trait that we live in because we're all offspring of Adam. Where's the good news, Edward? Here it is. The good news is that this isn't the fatalistic determination. In other words, this isn't how it has to be for you, for us, for anyone, for eternity. We can be redesigned. Natural born sinners transformed into righteousness and life. Hooray! Thanks be to God. So in chapter 5, Paul has said we are living under the reign and the rule of sin. And I've explained what that is. Because we are all in Adam. Think about it. One person can affect the many. Just a way maybe of, of getting a handle on this. If you lived in Iran at the moment, 
or if you lived in Zimbabwe, you might be your own, well, you would be your own person living in your own home with your own kind of life and family. But the impact, the effect of one person would be affecting you. Because the Ayatollah in Iran, or Mugabe as the president, is living in such a way, the international community has recognized that this kind of uh, lifestyle, behavior, choices, governance is kind of not good. So they've imposed sanctions upon that country, and it is affecting everybody because of the one person. Do you see that? Living under the rain and the rule of sin. The effect, the choice of Adam affects us all. So if you look at verse 21, here's the contrast. There's some light relief coming. Give you a bit of hope. Chapter 5, verse 21. So that just as sin reigned in death, we live in the reign and effect kingdom of sin, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The reign of sin in Adam, the reign of grace in Jesus Christ. Verse 14, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who didn't sin by breaking a command as Adam did, who's a pattern one to come. Verse 17, for if by trespass of the one man death reigns through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace reign in life through the one man, Jesus? The reign of sin and death in Adam, the reign of grace and life in Christ. Either or. Which are you under? One of the constant things that comes out in the Alpha course and talking with youth and talking with people is there's this kind of cultural perception that people are living in this kind of third space. It's like, well, okay, you're Christians over there. And maybe over there there's there's the Muslims, and over there, there's the atheists, and I'm here in my little patch of belief land, and I'm kind of surveying the geography, surveying, and I'm going to make my decision of where I want to go. Do you know that? Talked about it. It's all very well for you over there, you Christians and your songs and your bands and church. I know all very well for them over there, but I'm in my own space, and it's kind of like they've drawn their own place. The news of the gospel is there is no third space. Very clearly, it's an either and or. It's one of those kind of black and whites, death or life. Rain, living in the reign of sin and death or living in the reign of Christ and life. Gospel's abundantly clear, dead or alive, darkness or light. Which are we under? Which do you want to be under? Because by default, we're in one. But faith means as we accept the gift of life, we move to the other. Here's the light relief. 
I'm going to give you. In this clip from Lord of the Rings... Oh, yeah. Really? Yeah, look. Here we go. Yeah, and Hobbit Part 2 of, uh, is coming out. This is the bit in uh, The Two Towers where Gandalf has come back to life. And he's no longer Gandalf the Grey, he's Gandalf the White. And he goes to uh, Theoden, the king. And Theoden is trapped in darkness. And it's this kind of encounter where Gandalf brings freedom. Theoden in himself is powerless because he's become ensnared and trapped in lies and deceit. And you see the consequence of that choice is his, his death and dying. Watch what happens. My lord, Gandalf the Grey is coming. The courtesy of your hall is somewhat lessened of late, Theoden King. He's not welcome. Why should I welcome you, Gandalf Stormcrow? A just question, my liege. Late is the hour in which this conjurer chooses to appear. Last spell I name him. Ill news is an ill guest. Be silent. Keep your forked tongue behind your teeth. I have not passed so far in death to bandy crooked words with a witless worm. Stop. I told you to take the Stop! <laughs> Too long have you sat in the shadows. I would stay still if I were you. Hearken to me. I release you from the spell. <laughs> <laughs> you have no power here, Gandalf the Grey. <laughs>
yourself. Breathe the free air again, my friend. Fingers would remember their old strength better if they grasped your soul. We'd be here so many hours to watch uh, the rest of it, even more than I can preach for. Um, great scene, isn't it? Where Theoden is trapped. Theoden has become part of, of darkness. And he's powerless to free himself. Yet, Gandalf, the white, in light, sets him free. And he, he is... Um, he is transformed. The old self goes. And he's kind of like born again. He's younger. And I love that bit where he takes his sword and, and the symbolism that he's, he's, he's now liberated to join the forces of right and good and bring in the right kingdom. An illustration of what it means to move from death to life. To be under the reign and rule of, of sin, of in Adam or in Christ. And the contrast is stark. It's not like uh, the two are vying. It's not an equal tussle. It, five times in Romans 5, we get this phrase, how much more, in, in verse 15, uh, we hear, the gift of God is not like the trespass. For if the many died by the trespass of the one one, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus, overflow to the many? How much more? Verse 17, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Or 520, uh, that um, grace is increased all the more. How much more. It's uneven. Here is death in Adam and, uh, uh, and judgment in Adam and the reign of sin in Adam. But how much more is the wonder of grace and the reign of life in Christ? Where would you choose to be? Uh, when I got a PC all those years ago, I discovered the many time-wasting devices that they have. Does anyone play Hearts? Look under the game section if you have PC. The game Hearts is a card game on the PC, and it's kind of a fun game. And uh, the idea of Hearts is that it's a bit like uh, Whist, isn't it? You, 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 have a, you play your hand, and you have to win by the higher card. You win the tricks. But the, the idea of Hearts is that, that there's always, the Hearts are always the kind of the suit that trumps. Do you know that? That the hearts will always win. So if I played 
a, a, a king of, of spades, I could win by playing even a two of heart because the hearts win. And so it's like this. In Adam, he, there is the sin card, but Christ's card of righteousness is like the ace of hearts. The, Adam plays the death card for all those who are in Adam, but the king of hearts plays life. Adam plays condemned. Jesus plays justified. Always wins. Jesus has the winning hand in Christ. Makes such a difference. And so one of the, the things that, that, it's, that we do well to remember in this, in this transfer when we move from death into life is that we are no longer in Adam, we are in Christ. We're not in a third space. We're in Adam, old Adam and death, or in Christ, of new Adam, so to speak, new life. He is the representative. And as such, these things are true. In Christ, I have access to the Father through the Spirit. In Christ, I am His workmanship created for good works. In Christ, I am loved by God's great love. In Christ, I was chosen before the foundation of the world. In Christ, I am blessed with every spiritual blessing. In Christ, I am being transformed by the renewing of my mind. In Christ, I am chosen and appointed by God. In Christ, I am God's friend. In Christ, I bear much fruit and my fruit remains. In Christ, I'm a child of God. This is what it means to be in Christ. And the opposites would be true if we remain in Adam. And surrounding it all, enveloping it all, kind of padding it, infusing in every way. In this passage comes the concept of grace. Ten times in six verses. Grace, this is the grace, the action, the initiative, the purpose, the action of God. It's not about us trying hard or struggling hard or screwing up our face with determination and kind of crawling our way from one to the other. Not at all. This is the action and the power, the outrageous and the undeserved, the unmerited and divine favor towards us in God through Christ. Grace. That says, God doesn't desire us to stay in Adam, but to be in Christ. And his grace is the means and the power and the action of God in Christ through the work of his Holy Spirit that transforms us. All we do is say, okay, I believe, I trust. When I used to do funerals a lot in Leicester, I'd sometimes go to be waiting and to go in for that, my particular one, or sometimes the relatives of the deceased would, you know, we talk about songs and music, and, and my heart would sink because one of the popular things the funeral directors would tell us, you know, the most popular song at funerals, it's not "The Lord's My Shepherd," it's what? It's my way. I did it my way, and my heart sinks because it's like, yeah, but. That's a rubbish way. I did it my way. I did it in my own strength. I did it, you know, I charted my own course. Well, in the world, that's celebrated. But in the spiritual realm, that's just foolishness. It'll stay in death. 
grace of God says a new way. We read it. We read it. Ephesians, Paul speaks of this so much. Chapter 1, verses 7 to 8. It says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. What comes to mind when you think of lavish? I think of a nice apple pie with lavished custard. <laughs> Not at my nan's with cream. Of Oh, that cream's got to last till tomorrow. <laughs> I think of my grandfather who used to eat porridge. And he was lavish with his cream. He would have a fork full of cream. Isn't that great? Can you imagine a fork full of cream? It just pours through. Lavish. He died of a heart attack when he was 88, and he was fairly big, but <laughs> he lavished. What do you think about when lavished? Maybe you think about going to the spa, and you're lavished with pampered things. Pa lavish isn't grasping. Lavish isn't just enough. Lavish is abundant, reckless. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace, which he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. Wow. This is what transfers us from death to life. This is the initiative and the action and the mind and the desire and the purpose and the action of God in Christ such that we can be in Christ. For all who would believe, for all who would choose, for all who would have in their mind and their heart the recognition, this life in death sucks. Doing it my way doesn't work. I want to go Christ's way. Simon Ponsonby has a very helpful little reminder that the difference isn't kind of like one degree to another, it's chalk and cheese between Adam and Christ. He says, in Christ, it happens to us, uh, in, in Adam, it happens to us all. We're all in his ancestry. But in Christ, through choice, through the gift, things are entirely different. And he makes the point to say, the difference is we, we have no choice about being in Adam, but we have every choice about being in Christ. It's of a different order. But he says, this gift of grace that is lavished upon us has to be received. And he says this story, I thought it was really helpful as I close. He said, a couple of years ago, I saw a notorious Oxford drunk fall hard on the road outside my house, hitting his head on the curb and knocking himself out. He split his head open and lay unconscious and bleeding. He was dying. I rang the paramedics and one arrived quickly. He began working on the guy who seemed to come around, sat up, and started wrestling with the paramedic aggressively. Perhaps in a drunken state, he thought he was being attacked or robbed. The paramedic tried to calm him down and explained he wanted to help, but the drunk was having none of it. 
Exasperated, the paramedic warned, if you do this, I will have to leave. Shortly afterwards, that was what he did, leaving the guy drunk, concussed, bleeding, and hurting in his own stubborn stupidity. More recently, the same man came to our church, drunk and weeping and broken, and we prayed for him. More recently still, I saw the man totally transformed, sober, clean-shaven, and bright-eyed. It would seem he'd finally accepted grace. Rescue requires response. Grace can be rejected, though happily for us, it doesn't always take no for an answer. Where are you? Where are you? Do you want to be in Christ and you know you're not? I'm sure most of you here are Christians, but you know your heart. Do you know that with certainty? Do you know you're a Christian? Lloyd George used to ask the question, are you sure of your faith? And if people said, mm, not sure, he'd say, you haven't grasped it. You haven't yet moved into life because when you do, you know shadow of a doubt you're in Adam or in Christ and brothers and sisters in the church dear dear brothers sisters have you forgotten where you are the grace that is lavished upon you the difference it makes this isn't to put us on a pedestal or anything like that but spend time with the lost world, and you soon realize what a wonder it is to be in Christ. And you also see the power of God to transform. No one is beyond the grace of God. He lavishes again and again. It's immeasurable. It can't be put in a measuring cup or weighed on a scale. His grace is sufficient. Should we pray? Will you respond? Will you, will you ask Jesus simply by saying, I accept this gift? If you've not believed and you want to now. To move from death to life. To be set free. To no longer be slave to sin belong to Christ. I can't say any starker that there's no hinterland, there's no place where you stand kind of observing dispassionately and independently, either or. You're one or the other. Where do you want to be? Truly, where do you want to be? In death or life? Judgment or life? If you choose Jesus, just say it in your heart and mind. Maybe say it out loud. It's a good thing to say. Jesus, I choose you now. You make the way for me to come. I don't deserve it. I can't earn it. But I see clearly uh, you're my Savior. You're the Lord. I want the life that you give me. I want to follow you.
be in Christ. Be a friend of God. Begin again. Fill me with your spirit. And I pray, Jesus, we'd remember and not be lured or think, oh, in Adam, it wasn't so bad after all. I pray we'd remember. I pray we'd live in the lavishness of the riches of God lavished upon us. And I pray we'd live. We'd live. And it might seem daft to the world, foolishness, but it's living in giving up our life in saying, Jesus, my life's yours. Count me as nothing that you may be everything. May I give myself for you and your kingdom. After all, he promised fullness of life and he doesn't disappoint. Thank you, Jesus for the way you make. Thank you, Father, for the step you took in rescuing us. Build your church, we pray. Based upon the apostles' teaching and prayer. I've tried to explain Paul's teaching. Lord, forgive me if I've clouded or gone on too long or made not as obvious as it should be. But may each one of us be built and rooted firmly in Christ, pointed there by the truths of this passage and others. And as we pray, confirm it. In our spirit, in our living, in our worship, Amen.